We've completed six weeks of looking at why Jesus with sort of a transition last week as we looked at 1 Corinthians 15 and Paul's summary of the gospel there. And so today we're starting Why Church. I'm going to be in the book of Acts for the next several weeks, which is always a joy. I love the book of Acts. I know you do too. And uh, it's an exciting place to study. We're going to start in chapter 1 of verse 1 this morning as we look at the ends of the earth. I want you to think about how praise is supposed to go up to God from all lands and all peoples, that this is the gospel in every place to all people. And so we have this moment between the earthly life of Jesus and his incarnation before his ascension where he is emphasizing the most important things to his apostles as they gather. Verse 1 of the book of Acts says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we have the Lord's words, his emphasis at the very end of his time here on this earth, just before the ascension, where he talks to them about these most important matters that he wants on their mind and on their heart. Why? Because he is setting in motion a chain of events that will culminate in both the birth and the growth of his church to the very ends of the earth. I was visiting with about a dozen young people yesterday. They were gathered out here in the back, and Trey, the youth pastor, had a paddle, and he was stirring a big pot of jambalaya. And I must say, it was delicious. I had to test it to make sure it was okay, and uh, it was really good. I'm looking forward to the jambalaya in just a minute. And while we were visiting, all of a sudden, an engine hit a train that was parked right here on this track. And I didn't see the engine. I couldn't see either end of the train. But as we we stood there, we all startled, turned toward the train track as one after another, the boxcars just hit each other with a thump and a crash. Bang, bang, all the way, coming out of nowhere and disappearing into the distance. And so it is with what Jesus is setting forward in this time and this place as he gathers with his disciples just before the ascension. He is 
creating a momentum that will carry forward not only there in Jerusalem but to the very ends of the earth. And that chain of events comes right up to the present day and includes you and me. It is Luke, the historian, the physician, and a Gentile who records these words of Jesus. I know that Luke is delighted that Jesus did not just save Jews nor just restore the kingdom to Israel, but instead he also reached out to Gentiles like him. And I'm sure he's delighted that that gospel, the good news of Jesus, didn't end with just Samaria or Judea and just him, but went to the very ends of the earth. So that's the vision Jesus has for his church. He's going to build his church, and it's going to be reaching to the very ends of the earth. As Luke begins his history of the early church, which is the book of Acts, he addresses a person named Theophilus. This is a mystery person. Nobody knows about him. He's mentioned in the first part of Luke's gospel, as he says, most excellent Theophilus, I've written these things so you may be certain of what you've been taught. And here again, he speaks to Theophilus again. Theophilus is a Greek name. It's a compound. It has the word God in it and the word love in it. And for most all of my life, I thought that Theophilus meant lover of God. And we had a man in the early service whose name was Theophilus. Theophil is how he says it. And he came up and I said, what did you understand your name to mean? He said, lover of God. And that's how I learned it. But I learned something recently as I looked at Theophilus again, and it is this. Whether God is the subject or the object of love in this name is a little bit of a discussion. While some people think the name means lover of God, meaning the man loves God who has this name, others believe the name means loved by God or dear to God. So God is the one doing the loving, and this person is loved by God. Well, I've been thinking about that, and I really like the notion that the name means loved by God or dear to God. Throughout church history, people have postulated that maybe Theophilus wasn't a real person. Maybe he was just a literary device that Luke was using, or maybe he stood in for somebody. We know the name was used at the time that Luke wrote this gospel. We know that it was a common practice to address somebody in the first part of a treatise. Even Josephus did that back in this time. But the idea that Theophilus might stand in for others is intriguing, particularly if it means dear to God. Then what Luke would be doing is he'd be writing to the people who are dear to God, who are loved by God. And that would include every single person that reads his gospel or reads this history of the early church. Every single person could see themselves as Theophilus, dear to God. And it would emphasize this truth, that every single person is dear to God. We know that because the scripture says, God loved the world all the people in the world so much that he gave his only son. We know this because Jesus commands everybody, all Christians, everybody who's part of the church to love your neighbor as yourself. He wants us to love our neighbor. And 
I know that God loves my neighbor. And part of the compulsion I have to love my neighbor is because I know God loves him. If I thought God doesn't love my neighbor, then I'd feel like I was off the hook too to love my neighbor. So to say every single person in the world is dear to God, I think that's faithful to Scripture and our understanding of who God is and who Jesus is and what he has taught us. So I see Jesus standing there with the disciples gathered around him and telling them, I want you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, he is in his glorified body. He's been raised from the dead. He's about to ascend to the Father. I think he has taken all of those things that he laid aside when he emptied himself to become a man among men on the earth. He humbled himself at that time. He laid aside the prerogatives of his deity. But now in his glorified body, he retains those prerogatives. And one of those things is his omniscience. Whatever the omniscience of God is, I think Jesus has in this moment. And so when he says, take the gospel to everybody, he knows all their names. Past, present, and future. He knows all those folks who were there at the time on planet Earth and who lived all the way to the extremities of planet Earth. And so when he thinks about the mountains and the deserts and the beautiful sunsets, I'm sure he is even more thrilled with the faces and the voices of people that he loves as he thinks about and went to those places as he said, I want you to take the gospel not only here in Jerusalem, but to all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends, to the uttermost parts of the earth. You may be thinking, well, where are the, would the end of the earth be? When I got to Papua New Guinea into those mountains that were only accessible by airplane, I thought, this is surely the ends of the earth. The people were so strange and their customs so different and they looked so different. I thought, this must be the ends of the earth. But then I thought about Jesus standing there. We think perhaps in the Mount of Olives. Many believe that he ascended from the Mount of Olives. He is right there in or near Jerusalem. And he says, I want you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Why? Because everybody, every person needs to know what you know. Every person needs to know this. Those apostles, they are simple people. They've not been anywhere on the planet. Jesus himself never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. And the earth is a big place. It's 8,000 miles in diameter and 24,000 miles in circumference. And there are 197 million square miles on the surface of the earth and 58 million square miles of terra firma. When Paul gets to Rome and he wants to go all the way to Rome to preach the gospel, he is 1,500 miles from Jerusalem. If he got to Spain, he was 2,000 miles from Jerusalem. Do you know how far you are from Jerusalem? Jesus is standing in Jerusalem. He says, 
I want you to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And here you are, over 6,000 miles from Jerusalem. Those folks on the west coast are more than 8,000 miles from Jerusalem. In fact, we would be far more the ends of the earth here than Rome or Spain would be from Jerusalem. Jesus is saying, I want you to go to Jerusalem first. So take the gospel to the folks who are nearest to you. Then I want you to go to all Judea, which is your nation. And then I want you to skip over to Samaria, which is important, not only geographically, but also ethnically, because they are not fully Jews, and they have a different kind of religion, and they worship in a different space. He says, I want you to go to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, and he was talking about you and me for the gospel when it reached you, judging from Jerusalem, came to the ends of the earth. You are the extremity, the extremity in all kinds of ways. And these original apostles were not the ones who delivered personally the gospel to you. Instead, people like you and me read this teaching that Jesus was giving to the apostles, this commission he, he gave to them, and he said, you know what? That applies not just to them, but to us as well. We need to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so after that first generation, people like Luke, who saw himself as a second-generation believer, not an eyewitness, not part of the first core, but in that second generation. They took the responsibility of carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth just as seriously as did Peter and John and Andrew. And the gospel only reached you so far from where it began, thousands of miles from Jerusalem. The gospel only reached you because second and third generation Christians took this commission seriously and carried the good news to people like you at the earth's extremities. Every person is dear to God and every person needs to know this wonderful good news. Because every person is broken by sin and doesn't know how and can't fix that themselves. Yesterday, we had a work day. We took out a bunch of bushes over here, and Carlo Petalino brought his truck. And after we cut down those two big palm trees that you saw when you looked in there, but you don't see them anymore, did any of you notice they were gone? Hardly anybody knows they were gone, but they are gone, okay? We pulled them out, we cut them up, we loaded them up in Carlo's truck. Palm trees are actually very stinky and very dirty vegetation. I'm just telling you. When I got back from the hospital, these guys were just covered with dirt. It's a dirty business. They loaded up that truck, and the truck was weighted down. Carlo pulled out of the little grassy spot and pulled onto the parking lot, and something happened to his truck. He had it in four-wheel drive, and it would not work. It wouldn't go. Laying down with all this stinky stuff, it started skidding on the pavement every time he put gas uh, to the engine. And it would just screech in little successions. And I walked along it thinking, what is wrong with this truck? And Carlo pulled it down to the lower parking lot. He couldn't get it going. He got on his phone. He started trying to find somebody who could help him. Maybe somebody that could just come and tow his truck while they're waiting. We went down there and decided we were going to unload that truck and just put all the stuff into the red truck, which we did. Got this red truck, took all that stinky stuff out of that truck, 
and put it in the red truck. In a little bit, here comes Carlo. I thought the truck was the the, the tow truck was going to come get him. No, here comes Carlo. He says, "The truck is working." I said, "How can that be?" He said, "I put it in reverse, and when I backed up, it corrected itself." Well, I can't help but think, you know. What's broken about people is the same everywhere. They're loaded down with stinky stuff, right? And they need to get that load of filth and stink out of their life. And that's what Jesus does. So Jesus deliberately connects the kingdom of God and repentance and forgiveness for sin. And this is what repentance is. It is you turning around. It's you putting it in reverse. God fixes us through the gospel everywhere, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, whoever they are. God takes care of the stuff that is filth in us. He buries it in the depths of the sea. And as we repent and make our turnaround, he fixes what's broken inside. Every person needs to know this. And the gospel works in every place, no matter where you go. When I went to Papua New Guinea, I preached at a church in a little village with 2,000 people. There were 700 folks that came that day into that little church building. They were standing everywhere. Who were they? They were believers in Jesus. And I thought they were at the ends of the earth, but really I am there too. I'm at God's extremities, and the gospel reached me through the grace and love of God. So what Jesus did in this scene between his incarnation and that time when he ascended and the church was born is he, he rehearsed the things that he had done and that he had taught them, and he taught them about the kingdom of God. Now, that's mentioned a couple of times. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God and saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached the kingdom of God over and over. It is a major theme in the teaching of Jesus. But when you start reading about the apostles, the apostles are talking about Jesus himself. And the, the message went from the kingdom of God to the king who is Jesus. Now, they didn't abandon the kingdom of God. Instead, they talked about the kingdom of God with the Jewish rulers as the apostle did in Acts chapter 28. And then they, they urged people to believe in Jesus because they understood that the kingdom of God, the rule of God in the earth, was connected to Jesus as king, as savior, and Lord. And at the end of Acts, you will discover that truth that the kingdom of God and the preaching of Jesus are combined in the teaching of Paul in Rome, both to the religious authorities, the Jews, as well as to those Gentiles. What's this about the kingdom of God then? Jesus conceives the church, not in terms of geographical boundaries as most kingdoms are. He doesn't think about national boundaries or tribal lands. He's thinking about the church and its worldwide expansion, going beyond every geographical boundary to encompass the entire planet, every nation, tribe, and tongue, that every person on the planet is dear to God, and every single person on the planet needs to know. And the disciples fell into the same trap in the midst of this that we often fall into, Supposing that salvation and the kingdom of God has something to do with geographical boundaries. And so they asked the question that must surely have been dismaying to Jesus, the risen Lord. They said, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom 
to Israel. That's what they asked. And I think Jesus must have thumped his head like this and said, you guys aren't listening. And he avoids the question. He says, it is not for you to know the times of the season the Father is set by his own authority. It's not about that. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses not only here in Jerusalem, not just in Judea, which would be the geographical boundaries of the kingdom, but unto the uttermost parts of the earth. We sometimes suppose that our salvation as a nation or as a people or as a tribe or a tongue is going to be some kind of political process that we'll put in place. And like James and John, if we could just be prime minister and secretary of state, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, then we could turn this thing around and salvation would come. And it is a mistake. It is a misreading of the gospel to suppose that some political process is going to bring us or any other people in this planet to salvation. It's about the kingdom of God seen through Jesus as Savior and Lord. And it transcends all geographical boundaries now and through these 2,000 years of human history since the cross. It is in fact true there is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we are saved except the name of Jesus. And he is the sole Savior, the only one who can deliver a man or a woman from what's broken inside and what ails them. And so they need to know about this kingdom that is spiritual in nature, that breaks every stronghold of the enemy and restores you as a child of God, God intended you to be, bearing your sin in the depths of the sea, remembering it no more against you, and making you a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is the good news. Every person needs to hear. But you can't do it on your own. We can't do it on our own. Paul got the gospel to Rome, but he didn't get it to the United States or to these continents over here in the West, in this hemisphere. Jesus didn't want Peter, James, and John leaving Jerusalem until they had the enabling power of the Holy Spirit to do this witnessing that God intended for them to do. He said, wait until you receive power from on high. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is how I understand the baptism that was spoken of and that we'll read about in Pentecost. A one-time event in the life of the church, just like Calvary and the resurrection and the ascension, where God began something new in the family of man with His church, initiated by the coming of the Holy Spirit, empowered to be witnesses all over the globe. We cannot be, as First Baptist New Orleans, what God intends us to be without the enabling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. We've got to be filled with the Spirit, the Scripture says. There is one baptism and many fillings. We are baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ when we believe in Jesus. And we have the Spirit's presence in our life The Scripture says, he who has not the Spirit does not belong to God. So the Spirit abides within us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in us once we receive Jesus as Savior. But sometimes we go along our way thinking, oh, I got this. I got the gifts. I got the talent. I got the intelligence. I got the support that I need. I got this. I can do this. And so on our own, we try to be who God has called us to be, and that can't happen. 
We've got to be dependent on in every day and everything we do on the presence of the Holy Spirit. We need to be praying, Lord, fill me for this task I have at hand. I've got to teach this Bible lesson, Lord, and I don't want to do it in my own power and with my own intellect. I want you to be enabling me as I teach this lesson. I don't want to preach this sermon without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit because the witnessing that God intends for me to do can only be done like it should be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you just need to pray to the Holy Spirit. There are times when people in the Bible address the Spirit. The Spirit of God is fully God in every way. Just as the Son is fully God and the Father is fully God. So it is okay for you to say, Holy Spirit, I need you today. He is the Holy Spirit, which means He is wholly different than you. He's wholly other than you. It also means He is pristine. He is pure. And so the scripture says, I want you to be holy like I am holy, God says. And the holiness that God draws us toward is the holiness of the Holy Spirit. If you pray, fill me, Holy Spirit. If you ask the Holy Spirit to enable you in the service that you give to him day after day, even as a wife and a husband and in your family as a father or a mother, asking for the enabling power of the Holy Spirit as you lead your company, as you go into committee meetings, as you're part of a board meeting, asking the Lord to be with you, to help uh, you represent him well in every dialogue and interaction in life. You are reminded as you pray for the Holy Spirit's presence that you too must be holy. Sometimes we live in an unholy way and we compromise our witness and we know it is true. Having lived outside of the will of God in an unholy way, we realize that our witness does not have the power it should have. We don't have the motivation to share Christ with our friends and our family members because we ourselves have compromised that witness. And we're afraid that they're going to look at us and say, who are you trying to tell me how to live? Look at the condition of your life. We stand in the forgiveness of Christ. We stand in his grace. And we stand in his enabling power as we ask the Holy Spirit to cleanse us and fill us. And no matter what your journey has been spiritually, where you've been even recently, if you will go to God asking for his cleansing and his empowerment, he will cleanse you and empower you for the work he has called you to do. What God has called you to do, he enables you to do, through his Holy Spirit. Look, the Holy Spirit is blessed. It's a blessing to know that the Spirit of God is at work in your life. It helps your world open up way beyond your abilities, way beyond what you know or what you can do, so that you realize God can be using you in ways you could not imagine. The Holy Spirit's power is beyond our comprehension. So to be enabled by him is to know that we have all kind of potential in our witness in this life to live faithfully for Christ and to articulate our faith unto others. So the scripture says you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and then you will be my witnesses. Where you live in your region in other places and even to the ends of the earth.
unlike the time of Jesus, when maybe they could get 1,500 miles away. I'm looking at a group of people who probably one day will put their feet down in maybe every country in the world. We'll be sent by companies in the military, business, and travel, and leisure. And we'll end up touching down in all these different places in the world. It's true. Many of us have even circumvented the globe already in our travels. God intends that we as his ambassadors, wherever we go, be empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to who he is in all these places that our travels take us. Why? Because every person is dear to God. Wherever your plane touches down, wherever the company sends you, those people are dear to God and he loves them. And every person needs to know what Jesus bought for him at Calvary, forgiveness of sin and a new life in Christ. And every witness needs this power to be who God has called them to be wherever he plants them. Now, we are planted here in New Orleans, and we thank God for that. It's a great place to live, great place to share the good news. And God has given us an opportunity and a calling to share the good news right here in New Orleans. So, brothers and sisters, would you pray that the Holy Spirit will fill you and enable you to be the witness God's called you to be right here in your Jerusalem? Bow with me, please. As we bow our heads together, perhaps there's somebody here who's never trusted Jesus as Savior You've intended to, you've thought about it, and you really want to. Would you just say to God, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I understand that. Please forgive me for my sin. I open my heart to you. I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the dead. God, I want you in my life. Would you make that prayer unto him? In a moment, would you come and tell me about it? Maybe you're a believer who has wandered a long ways from being a witness empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is drawing you back to a, that place of faithful witness that he intends for you to be because every person is dear to him. All those people you rub shoulders with at work and school, they are dear to the Father who loves you, but he also loves them. So maybe the call of the spirit upon your life is to renew your commitment in your school in your work in your family to be the person empowered to witness to the life of Christ Holy Spirit we need you forgive us when we neglect to live in your presence and in the awareness of your power God, we pray that you will enable us to serve you faithfully where you've planted us. Help us listen just now to what you're speaking, to hear you, and to respond. In Jesus' name we pray.